0: This is lecture number 24 of the Major Prophets by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture 24 of the Major Prophets, but lecture number 4 concerning Daniel. We've been through number 2 on the outline of Daniel, and now we are at number 3 of your outline, and we are going to discuss Daniel chapters 2 and 7. Daniel 2 is the first chapter in the book that contains a great many predictions. It contains an incident where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he forgets it. And then he asks his wise men to interpret it for him. And not only to interpret it, but also to tell him what the original dream was all about. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. These wise men, the Chaldeans, as they're called, say... The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, whatever great or mighty position he has had, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. End quote. So, he makes that request, and Daniel asks the king for some time and says that he will give the king the interpretation. So, you read in verse 19, quote, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and opposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Then the secret is revealed to Daniel in verses 31 to 35. He tells the king the dream. He says, "You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold; its chest and arms of silver; its belly and thighs of bronze; its legs of iron; its feet partly of iron." and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on his feet of iron and clay, and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time, and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace." but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth, quote. And so you have this in verses 31 to 35. That is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Then in chapter 2, verses 36 to 45, you have the interpretation. And here's what we read. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, but inferior to yours. Next a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth." Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partially of bay clay and partially of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, So this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw, the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be mixed, but they will not remain united, any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut without hands from a mountain, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Quote. And so, there's the interpretation of the dream. Now, it's clear in this vision or dream that it's interpretation you have four kingdoms. First, the image of the head of gold, breasts and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs and feet are iron, and feet iron and clay. The question is, what do they depict? What are the political kingdoms that are symbolized here? Then, what is the stone that smashes the image and destroys it? Now again, there are three basic views for its interpretation. The question is, what kingdoms do the parts of the image refer to and what is represented by the stone. There are three different answers to those questions. The first is that the climax of the vision, the large stone, is in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the critical view. Advocates of that approach would say the climax, again, the climax meaning the large stone, is in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, around the time of 165 B.C., This vision is depicting the succession of kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar until you get to Antiochus Epiphanes. So, just like chapter 8 leads up to Antiochus Epiphanes, and chapter 11 leads up to Antiochus Epiphanes, so it's the same with chapter 2. The stone cut without hands is a Jewish uprising that will gain deliverance from Antiochus. So that brings you to an area of prophecy, where the Jews will destroy Antiochus and set up a kingdom that will fill the whole earth. Now, critical scholars would say that's what's in the mind of the one who wrote the vision of the image in chapter 2. He's depicting history and predicting the overthrow of Antiochus and establishment of a kingdom that will fill the whole earth. Of course, we would know that whoever wrote this was mistaken because the Jewish uprising in the time of Antiochus got rid of Antiochus, but it did not establish a kingdom that filled the whole earth. So, there are things which did not go exactly as expected by the writer. Again, that's the critical view. Now look at page 42 in your citations. This is taken from N.W. Porteous, whom we've seen before. The first three paragraphs are from page 46, and the last one from page 47. Here's the way he develops this view. He says, and I quote, There is no doubt at all, as we have seen, about the identifications of the first kingdom, it is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The great majority of modern scholars likewise agree that the fourth kingdom is that of the Greeks. That this view is correct might be difficult to demonstrate on the basis of chapter 2 taken by itself. But when the parallel visions of chapter 7 and the visions in the concluding part of the book are taken into account, a case can be made which can convince anyone who is not committed to another view in spite of the internal evidence of the book itself. End quote. And here is an interesting statement, and I quote, It is undoubtedly true that when men look back from the vantage point of early Christianity, they saw a tremendous event in the founding of the Church, the fulfillment of the promised triumphant of God's kingdom as was foreseen by Daniel. But all this should not prevent us from looking fairly and squarely at what the book itself says. End quote. And this is from page 42 in your citation. I quote again from Porteus, As we shall see, the evidence points unmistakably to a date which may be very closely determined within the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, but the completion of the book, as we have it now, makes it clear the climax of history was regarded as being imminent at that particular time. That the expectation was not literally fulfilled is a fact which has to be faced honestly. Quote. And then moving to page 47. If the fourth kingdom is Greece, it's clear the third must be Persia, And then, there seems no choice but to regard the second kingdom as the apocryphal Median kingdom, the existence of which joins the Babylonian and Persian kingdoms. There is absolutely no trace of an independent Median kingdom in contemporary records, that is, contemporary to Daniel. The Median kingdom of actual history that played its part in destroying Nineveh in 612 BC was incorporated into the kingdom of Persia in 5.50 by Cyrus, when he defeated his enemies. It is only in the book of Daniel, and in writings dependent upon it, that we meet the mysterious and baffling Median kingdom, which is seen as a historical blunder. Quote. And then on top of page 43, we read again from Porteus, We possess contemporary records, and they show there is no place at all, that is, for a Median kingdom, between the fall of the Neo-Babylonian dynasty and the assumption of power by Cyrus of Persia, quote. And then he goes on to page 49, where we read, It signifies first that the fourth kingdom is to be divided after the death of Alexander the Great, and the empire did break up eventually. The two successor kingdoms, which were of most consequence to the Jews, was the Seleucid power to the north and the Ptolemaic power to the south. By the 2nd century, the former, that is, the Seleucid, had clearly, by the victory of Antiochus III, proved its superiority over its Ptolemaic rival at the Battle of Pontius in 198 BC, so much so that Palestine had passed from the Ptolemaic kingdom to the Seleucid sphere of influence. We must, therefore, conclude, the iron represents the Seleucid kingdom and the clay the Ptolemaic. Secondly, however, the mixture of iron and clay symbolizes intermarriages between the two royal families, for which references will have to be made later. See chapter 11, these intermarriages had not led to stable friendships between the two families. And this ends the quote from Portius. The next paragraph on page 50, we read, In the next interpretation, Daniel comes to this mysterious stone. For it is without human agency which strikes the image on the feet, the most vulnerable part, and reduces it to a heap of fragments so small and light that they are blown away by the wind. This is said to have happened in the days of the kings, by which it is meant the kings of the fourth kingdom, not the kings of all four kingdoms. It is a result of the figure employed in the dream, namely, that the image of the fourth kingdom represents the kings that they were all present contemporaneously and they vanished at one and the same time. This should not be pressed. Chronological sequence clearly introduced an interpretation. The grotesque growth of this stone in the dream is explained as meaning the establishment of an eternal kingdom. Geoffrey Well, another commentator, says it is standing forever in the universality of the kingdom in time just as the mountains filling the earth represents this universality in space. End quote. That is basically the critical approach to Daniel chapter two. The succession you see includes the apocryphal Median Kingdom, which will give you the four kingdoms before we get to the Greek kingdom, and then in the context of the Greek kingdom, the mixture of iron and clay is the intermarriage between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The second view finds the climax in the first advent of Christ. Advocates of this view would say the critical view is wrong. Antiochus comes in the third kingdom, not in the fourth. Advocates of this view would say Antiochus does not appear in this chapter at all. He may be in chapter 8 or 11, but has nothing to do with chapter 2. There is no mention of him in chapter 2 at all. This position would be... The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire, the breasts and arms are the Medo-Persian Empire, the belly and thighs are the Greek Empire with Alexander and his successors, and the legs and feet are the Roman Empire. Then, in the time of the Roman Empire, this stone, cut without hands and smites the image, appears, and that is Christ. By the birth, life, and death of the resurrection of Christ— You have the decisive blow struck to the human empires. With his coming, a new kingdom is established that covers the whole earth. Look at page 45. E.J. Young is the representative here. Next to the last paragraph, bottom of page 45, this is about chapter 7. This is the first paragraph, and it's about chapter 2. The first paragraph is chapter 2, as I mentioned. This is on page 79 of Young. And I'm quoting here. Most Christian expositors find a reference in Christ and the progress of his kingdom. Quote. Now, this seems to me to be correct up to this point. I continue quoting. The stone, as represented not being cut out of the mountain by hands, is in order to show it is not prepared by men, but by God. The blow which is delivered strikes the metals in the reverse order in which they had first been described, to show its effects would not reach forward, but backward on the remnants of former earthly greatness. The kingdom of God will completely triumph, and the kingdom of men, as was represented by the image, will be completely destroyed. Quote. So you see, according to Jung, the fulfillment is during the first advent of Christ. Now, I think you can see that there are some reasons for coming to that conclusion. You have a Babylonian Empire, then a Medo-Persian, then a Greek, and then a Roman. The Babylonian, Persian, and Roman Empires lasted about a hundred, two hundred and three hundred years, respectively. These are not enormous spans of time. Then you come to the Roman Empire, and the early period of this empire, you have the coming of Christ. It might seem that if you're going to say the Great Stone is the second advent of Christ, you need to extend this Roman Empire in some way to not only the present, but also to the future. The Roman Empire is out of proportion with the others as far as time is concerned. But let me just pose some questions here before going on to the third view. When Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 35, that stone smites the image, and he says, it became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth, what does that mean? Does that mean the kingdom that is established here is to be found in the spiritual realm with the spread of the gospel? Does it mean in the spread of the gospel through which the whole world would eventually come to Christ? That would be a post-millennial view, a view we have not been talking about much. When we look at the prophecies of Isaiah, we looked at this post-millennial view that looks at the conditions of peace and justice as realized here on earth in a very literal sense, but they will come about as the gospel is taken to the ends of the earth. So, with this view, you are talking about the first advent, but are you talking about a spiritual kind of kingdom? Or it is a kingdom that you have not seen yet, but will be realized in the earthly physical sense through the spread of the gospel? Or is this fulfillment to be seen in connection with the second advent of Christ rather than the first? See, those are questions that can be asked and that should be answered. I say we hold those questions for a moment and go on to the third view, which would say the climax, again, the stone striking the image, is the second advent of Christ, Not the first advent of Christ, nor the destruction of Antiochus, as in the critical view. The succession of empires would be the same as the previous view, that is, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, and Greek, but when we get to the legs and the feet, we have an added distinction. You have the Roman Empire, but with two phases. You have the legs and the feet. There are two sections, the legs of iron and the feet, part iron and part clay. The suggestion would be that you have two phases between the legs and the feet, and there is a gap between the two. Now, you see, if you look at that succession of empires, the Babylonian Empire lasts about 80 years, the Persian Empire about 200. Alexander's is about 280 years. Not his own rule, but the Hellenistic Kingdom lasted to about 50 BC, so that's about 280 years. But then you come to this question about the Roman Empire. Do you extend it two thousand plus years? That's a long kingdom. You can ask, where is it today? So, some have argued there is a gap that occurs in this fourth kingdom between the legs and the feet, and that is indicated by the iron of legs and the iron and clay of the feet. Now, that might seem artificial, and I think for the present. We could say that we'll just hold this and see if some other prophecies may shed some light on this interpretation. I think part of the problem with the gap in this particular image is that many times in Daniel, maybe not in this chapter, but you have these four kingdoms and there seems to be a parallelism. In chapter 8 there are four, in chapter 7 there are four, and they are quite parallel with chapter 2. But then, it could be a matter of degree. If you're going to posit a gap here, in a sense, you are speaking of a fifth kingdom, but not a fifth kingdom that has nothing to do with the one that precedes it. In other words, a fifth that, in some sense, traces its origin back to the fourth. There is certainly unity as well as continuity, but I think that the problem is that the parallelism is so striking between chapters 7 and 2. And seven, instead of an image of four parts, you have four beasts, four different animals. And within the fourth, you get this horn that comes up. That seems like it is the Antichrist. So the question in chapter seven is, what are the phases in the fourth kingdom? Now, not only the Reformers, but there have been a lot of people who argued that Europe, the Catholic Church, Western ideas or laws, NATO... All these kinds of things have been drawn into this continuation of the Roman Empire in one way or another. So, let me go over number two again in the outline. Objections to the Various Approaches That first viewpoint, the critical viewpoint, if you hold that, you have got to get four kingdoms before Antiochus Epiphanes, and the only way that you can do with that is to create the Median Kingdom, and put it between the Babylonian and Persian kingdoms. Historically, that is erroneous. So the result is that if you hold that position, you hold an inaccurate resume of previous history. You must conclude the biblical text is mistaken. The character of divine revelation is destroyed. But the second viewpoint is the first advent of Christ, as representing the stone cut without hands. The Roman Empire only really became an empire about 30 B.C., so the stone is referring to Christ at his first coming and is placed in the early days of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire continued long after the death of Christ. You have the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans long after the death of Jesus and his resurrection. The Roman Empire in the West came to an end in 476 A.D., and that's over 400 years subsequent to the coming of Christ. In the East, there was really more influenced by Greek culture and thought, and gradually the empire was surrounding the area of Constantinople and somewhat concentrated there until it was conquered by the Turks in 1453 A.D. So in the eastern part, the remnants of the Roman Empire lasted until 453. A question might be asked with that second viewpoint. Where is the second phase of the fourth kingdom? Where is the distinction between the legs of iron and the feet of clay and iron? How does that fit with the first advent of Christ early on in the Roman Empire and in the smiting of the image? The third viewpoint climaxes at the second advent. It seems, however, like there is too much time involved, well over 2,000 years, and the suggestion of the gap would seem artificial. So, I would say at this point, let's make no decision on the conclusion for Chapter 2, but before doing that, let's look at Chapter 7, which parallels Chapter 2, and look at Chapter 7 independently, initially. Let's see what's clear in Chapter 7, and then we can compare what we find there to Chapter 2 to see what light Chapter 7 may throw on Chapter 2, and, in reverse, what light Chapter 2 may throw back on Chapter 7. I think you can do that trying to be careful not to push passages into line with preconceived ideas or systems. In chapter 2, there are several problems with the various viewpoints, so leave an open mind to that, then move on to chapter 7 and see what chapter 7 has to say. If chapter 7 throws any light back onto chapter 2, great. Then we'll understand both chapters better. Well, our time is up before we go on to chapter 7, so we'll stop here and look at Daniel chapter 7. Next time. This ends lecture number 24 by Robert Winoy on the major prophets. And this is lecture number 4 on the prophet Daniel.